Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Greetings. You're listening to So There I Was. It's how all great aviation tales begin. This is episode 75. Don't beat the Olympic runner, please. A sponsor this week is Babbel. Learn a new language and hold meaningful conversations in as little as three weeks with proven techniques only available at Babbel. And our listeners get 55% off by going to babbel.com slash so there I was. We'll talk more about that during the show. Regardless of whether you ultimately decide to buy, visiting our sponsor link lets our sponsors know you're listening. So please visit them and give their products a look. And as usual, this week we ask you to keep sending your photos of where you are when listening to the show. They're being posted on our Facebook group, so there I was. Come join us if you're not there. This week we have one from Yogi in front of Buckingham Palace, and he writes, quote, maybe the only time someone was hearing about Fister, ass, and tranny so close to royalty, unquote. <laughs> it's a big shout out to our newest Patreon pilot, Steve Coach Dito. Welcome aboard, and thank you for your support. We're thrilled to have you here. And let me take a moment to thank all of our supporters. We've got Keith Gallagher, Yogi, Marcus Ponte, Stephen Blunk, Peter Duncan, Donut, Jason Spears, Chucker, Eric Fletcher, Patrick McLight, Trixity, Chuck Thompson, Scott Southard, Justin Lundberg-Neff, Scott Walsh, Vapor, Jonathan Knuckles, Dragger, Bill Wilson, Double L, Chris Blaine, A.E. Schmidt, Hawktard, John Hall, Sticks. That's you, John. Hi. <laughs> Wayne Batzer, Scott Christensen, Cal Stewart, Mike Price, and Peter Robinson. Salvatore Marinello, a.k.a. Sal, Earl McCoy, Chase Cole, and Stephen Bates. Master. <laughs> if you'd like to be a Patreon pilot, section lead, division lead, or tanker aircraft commander, visit us at so there I was dot us slash Patreon. And to support us in other ways, the number one way you can help is by sharing this show with others. Share the show, please. Do it now. Go share the show. Listeners, welcome back. I'm your co-host, Repeat, and as you can hear, joining me for the very first time is our guest co-host, Sticks. Thrilled to be here, Repeat. Especially for episode 75. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? Right, man. It, time goes fast when you're having fun, and we are having a blast doing this. But time does fly, just like our guest today. Folks, we've got Briggs with us, a formidable Navy EP3 pilot whose stories span from the racetracks to the vast European skies. And speaking of tracks, this man wasn't just running. He was flying on foot, leaving a blazing trail on both high school and college tracks. Absolutely. But a real twist in his life came when a piece of advice from a Marine officer led him to the Navy, cutting short his efforts to go into the Marine Corps and a two-year wait to become a naval aviator. Good advice from a Marine captain sent him towards the Navy, which is where he wound up ultimately. And while flight school had its highs and lows... It was the guidance of a Marine Corps captain during his struggling days in the instrument phase that not only shaped his career, but also created a lifelong bond. Right. And once out of flight school, Europe beckoned. There in the vast expanse, Briggs learned invaluable leadership lessons, all while soaring in an EP-3, thanks to a squadron executive officer he greatly admired. 
So, listeners, I want to warn you, this guest is so downplaying a major significant event in his aviation career. Imagine losing control of your aircraft and not being able to change the pitch, not being able to get the aircraft pointed back towards the ground. Or back towards the sky if you're headed nose down. <laughs> or if you're, if you're heading, <laughs> heading up that way too. It can be both. It can be bad either way. This was bad. And he just downplayed it. Like, uh, you know, yeah, no big deal. You know, the elevator oh, freezes totally. all the time. Yeah. You know, this yeah, you know. happens. Yeah, look, it tends 25 minutes and, and three pilots muscling this airplane later than a race against time over the Mediterranean is what happened here. And we'll let Briggs give you all the heart-stopping details, although he's, he does it in such a calm manner. Uh, you're likely to not notice how this, bad, what extremists they were in. Oh, it's totally. It was insane. And for those needing a lighter note, brace yourself for a hilarious tale involving an Olympic runner, a sports drink commercial, and a surprising outcome. It's almost like a setup for a joke. Indeed. Setting the tone for today's episode title, Don't Beat the Olympic Runner, Please. <laughs> so gear up episode 75 promises a whirlwind story. of emotions don't sit on the ejection handle and don't let go of the collective here comes breaks in the world's smallest cockpit on the tanker through the weather oh and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that thanks a lot we really appreciated that I'm just kidding no I'm not There I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. Well, so there I was. It was oh dark 30, late July morning in Pensacola, Florida. I was woken up by a large metal trash can hitting the foot of my bed, bouncing all over the room, hitting the other racks. My roommates and I all jumped up, stood at attention at the foot of our racks. Four of the toughest United States Marine Corps drill instructors entered the room. One walked right toward me with fire in his blue eyes. And the rim of his, his uh, campaign cover just walked right up to me and was bumping it off the bridge of my nose. He was barking orders at me. And all I can think of, what the hell did I get into? And that's how all great aviation tales begin. Greetings, everybody. Repeat here, coming to you from New Hampshire. We've got a special cohort joining us today. Sticks, welcome. And welcome, Pete and Briggs. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Hey, thanks for inviting me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, glad to have you. So that's our special guest today, Briggs, United States Navy. Echo Papa, EP3 pilot, joining us. Uh, but he just talked a little bit about uh, his first day in the Navy. Sounds like a special one, uh, like <laughs> many of us experienced in uh, in our military careers. Uh, holy smokes. So how, how did you wind up uh, getting yourself into that? Not what did you get into, your, into but how did you get into? <laughs> well, it's uh, kind of a long, slow story. But, uh, uh, you know, I grew up in the middle of Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa, one of the suburbs. Um, I loved airplanes. I loved history. I loved tanks, military history and things. But uh, the rest of the school, they didn't really care about. But what I found out was early on that I was extremely fast at running track. I was a sprinter. And I loved reading, you know, 
what I couldn't really take, I couldn't care about when in school, but I can make up on the track. You know, I could beat pretty much anybody I ran against. And, and you know, that, that was great for my ego. Beautiful. But I loved reading about espionage stories, spy stories, Cold War stories. And, um, and also the only person uh, in my family blood related that had served, including the, both world wars, was an uncle of mine who served in Vietnam uh, as a Marine who uh, actually went out into the jungle. Okay. But uh, from track and field, you know, I, I became a kind of an overly competitive um, kid. You know, I was really scrawny, wasn't quite big enough for football, but I could, I could run. And it's, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I was a lot of cockiness and arrogance about me. Um, I remember if you know how track runs, it's an oval. They stagger you in the turn. Okay. And I would walk up to the runner on the inside lane, whether it was a relay or the race itself, and would say, you know, when the gun goes off, you're not going to see me. I'll be gone. That's kind of, you know, the cocky and arrogance that I, I grew up with. But, uh, <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> yeah. You know, it kind of psyched me up to, to do my best and stuff. Sure. But, uh, ended up in t- uh, attending a Division three school just south of East of Des Moines called Central. Okay. Um, I loved it. Studied a lot. Um, didn't get outstanding grades, but I, I survived, um, found out later I was a little bit dyslexic, but when I, when I looked at it, as I started approaching my senior year, um, and I, I majored as, you know, computer programming, it was okay. Management fine. I didn't want to kind of sit behind the desk. So I, I knew I kind of figured I just, I wanted to do something different and kind of play along with it. And the summer of, uh, 1984, um, just finished my junior year prior to going into my, uh, my senior year. Um, I got a chance to, I got selected to run with a team, a track team over in Eastern Europe. Nice. Okay. 1984, you know, cold war, um, you know, still the cold war Right. stuff I've read about just, just excited to go over there. So I got to visit Yugoslavia, uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Poland and run in various track meets and stuff. But still, I was kind of looking forward to my senior year, like, gee, what am I going to do? I, I don't know anything. And as much as I had so much fun over there, I um, really didn't. We were sitting in a Frankfurt airport waiting to come back to the States after being gone for six weeks. And as I was sitting there, I was looking out the window and I saw military aircraft taking off. And it just it just hit me. You know, as some people get this, that it, it's just their life just kind of com- turns around in a complete second. And it hit me. I'm going to go in the military and fly. Sweet. So as I got back to the States, I called my parents and I told them, I know what I want to do. I want to fly in the military. I think my dad was excited because he, he finally saw that I had a goal in the future. You know, mom was a little slow to pick it up, but, you know, she caught on to it stuff. Went to the Air Force. Uh, just didn't give me good vibes. Uh, called a Navy recruiter. I don't know who I talked to, but he said, well, we don't know if the Navy needs pilots right now, which is kind of ironic looking back because it was the big Reagan buildup. So, <laughs> right. so my uncle was a Marine. So I called the Marines and the recruiter from Des Moines spoke to the sergeant, came down the next day to, to my college at Central, gave me the test, ministered the test, um, did fine. He took it back and said, great, we're going to process you. Um, they actually sent me up to the old NAS Glenview uh, for medical and things okay. like this. Yeah, the whole get time, that flight physical. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a good physical, uh, very detailed. But you know, at the time, my 
my as we approached the spring track season, I I was you know going to go to OCS. I researched it all. OCS, TBS, bought books about marine aircraft, the Harrier, the Hornets, things like right. this. You know, I was right. I was all set to go. But it turns out um, about a week or about a couple weeks before I graduated, the recruiter called and said, we can't get you a billet uh, for two years. And, you know, with OCS and TBS, you know, that kind of pushes everything back. Right. And I thought, well, OK. But he said, you know, the Navy needs pilots. Do you want me to submit a, your package to them? That's, you know, sure. that's in, that's insane you know the thing i want to point out about that is that that just demonstrates outstanding leadership you know the fact that they were willing to say okay you know what you want to fly i'm going to look out for what your needs are that's just awesome yeah it was it was you know the next day a recruiter from omaha called me and said um hey we got your package it all looks great you just need to get some wisdom teeth out. And I, I said, well, I can't get it done until after, you know, I graduate and such. And he said, well, I need to know what kind of, uh, 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 can you get somebody to time you in the mile? And I said, <laughs> well, I've got track practice tonight. I'll just have my coach ta- uh, time me afterwards. And he goes, oh, you run track? And I said, yeah. And he goes, what kind of times do you run? And I told him, you know, what I did in 100, 200, 400. And he goes, oh, he goes, don't worry about it. We'll take care of that. So... <laughs> Not a problem. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) So after the national track meet, got the wisdom teeth out, and then I waited, waited, uh, took a sales job for about a week and learned I didn't want to do sales at all. I was not not that type of person. But when um, I got the call uh, to show up in uh, late July in Pensacola for AOCS, boy, I was raring to go. I just got up, walked out, and off I went to AOCS. Nice, nice, and 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 there you awakened <laughs> to a pleasant smile. <laughs> yes, uh, my recruiter was in Des Moines. Was really good about preparing me for AOCS right. with uh, Pressure Point. They had a video I should watch. Um, I gave me bet some that's on YouTube. I I haven't yeah. looked for it. You mentioned that when we did the pre-talk, and I remember watching Pressure Point way yeah. back in the day when I was getting ready to go to. Uh, to OCS. I thought, hmm, okay, what's what's this about? I went, yeah, I'm not sure I want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's like the recruiter had told me, you know, and he was flat out. He wasn't trying to sales job me at all, but at the same time, he was upfront and honest. He goes, you know, the, the Navy, with along with the Coast Guard and the Marine, we, we train the best pilots. That's how he put it. Yeah. And we're going to just start mm-hmm. you up right. And that's what it was. And, you know, I listened to your Gunny Go uh, podcast, um, so he I, great. yeah, that was, that was great. It, it was interesting to listen to their perspective of it on it, but, uh, yeah, I got down to Pensacola and like I said, you know, we get woken up by that trash can. I think that went all week. Uh, you know, I, I got a story there. I'm just going to jump yeah, in ahead. for a quick second. So I went to the Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point and, you know, so we're same routine. They pick up the trash can, they throw it down the hall. It's actually our, uh, you know, in-dock is run by the Marine Corps. Um, anyways, they one of our drill instructors threw the trash can down the hall and somebody overnight had put trash in it. And uh, next thing you know, you're hearing, who the hell put trash in my alarm clock? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Perfect. So that was, uh, yeah, that was my first day that uh, I entered with. And so there I was, my first day of uh, being indoctrinated to the United States Navy. 
Yeah. On that. So, yeah. So Colin McCann on Facebook heard that and he said, he gave the link. I'm showing it at the bottom of the screen, but uh, it's, uh, we'll, I will put a link in the show notes up on so there I was.us. So you can go and find that. It's, uh, it's quite entertaining, uh, actually. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> if um, uh, if you like like laughing at guys getting screamed at and all, that. but here's the thing: I, I the whole point of it was, if tell tell me if my recollection's wrong, the point of it is it's it's teaching you that what you're about to go through has a purpose. It's going to break you down as an individual, build you back up as a team member, but someone who can be relied on to pay attention to detail and not quit when things suck. Right. It was aviation officer candidate school, and. I mentioned about my arrogance and ego and all that. Boy, it just busted down to nothing. And, <laughs> you know, here I was with with uh, Marine drill instructors taking us through the first week, the first week of AOCS, Aviation Officer Candidate School. I think we started with about 88. And one of the toughest things about that 14-week school was you could quit at any time. Right. All you had to say was, I quit, drop on request, you were gone. And I mean, they became he who shall not be named. (laughs) And who was that? Who was who? That's right. And, you know, you make a friend with somebody and next day they they D.O.R. They were gone. And it was just, you know, that that part of it. Swimming uh, academics. um, I was not a swimmer. I could run. I could swim. If I put my toe in the water of a pool, I went right down to the bottom. You know, and you guys probably remember this, but so you're running on that eight percent body fat or less. Oh, I think I was even less than that way back then. <laughs> if I could get that back, but uh, yeah. But the uh, the thing is, when you're going through those schools, you know, it's always the little things that 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 seem to help. For instance, um, you do a tower jump. It's like off a high dive. You're in your flight yeah. suit. You you jump. You hit the water, but then you had to swim all the way to the to the far long end of the pool. And you get to the end, you know, so you stand up there, take a huge breath, hit the water, boom, you lose all your breath because of the pressure. It just forces the air out of your lungs. Right. You can't make it. Try it a second time. time, If you don't make it a third time, you fail. So I was up there on the third time. And I don't know if these, later I learned they were just uh, pilot, uh, commissioned officers waiting to go to training. They were called stashed ensigns or second lieutenants. Okay. And they were up there to help out. And one of them just kind of leaned over to me real quietly and said, don't take a full breath. Just take half a breath. Okay. So I took a half a breath, hit the water and going, wow, I feel great. And I swam all the way to the end. So I passed that phase. Uh, When it came down to the treading water part, I was actually taught a different way to tread water. And I created my own vacuum and went straight to the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Remember that 40 pounds of, yeah, 40 pounds of equipment and gear on. Yep. Trying, trying to tread water, and every time I did, I'd create my own vacuum and go straight down. One, again, one of the whoever, and I thank them for it. I wish I could go back 30-plus years and thank them for it, but I'll do that now. He walked up, and he said, look, do you know how to breaststroke? And I said, sure. And he goes, just do little breaststrokes in the water. You're creating your own vacuum. So I did that, and I'm like, well, this is a piece of cake. Why didn't anybody tell me this sooner? So I think it was, you know, so it's just little things like that, that. It's just amazing how little people or little things in your life can can, can help you to continue on, you know. Type sure. Thing. So, yeah, AOCS was it, it, we could we could spend hours on it. Um, the professionalism of the drill instructors. Um, there's a, a 
First Gunnery Sergeant uh, Crouch has collected stories over the years. And what we went through in 85 was the same. They went through the same thing in 67 and things like that. So it, it was a great indoctrination program for those of us that didn't have ROTC or Naval Academy experience. And that's how that's we got uh, at the end. We were commissioned on November 1st and we became Naval Ensigns. Nice. That's awesome. All Saints Dave, 85. <laughs> yeah. Good year for me. Yeah. So, so you- uh, I got assignment to uh, my training squadron. We were flying T-34 Charlies, the, the turbo mentors, um, you know, right. twin seat back-to-back aircraft. And uh, I checked into squadron, which was called VT, you know, VT-2 Dewar Birds at Whiting Field, which is north, northeast of uh, Pensacola. Right. So, uh, uh, we've covered this before, but let me just briefly yeah. j- uh, jump in. So VT stands for V stands for fixed wing and T is trainer. So fixed wing training squadron two at, at NAS Whiting in uh, uh, Milton, Florida. So that, but that's uh, and that's up on our glossary. So there was that us slash glossary. You can find, you know, HT, HMA, HMLA, all that sort of what that all means. But those not, letters all mean something in the Navy and the Marine Corps. So, yeah. sorry I about was, that, Briggs. Well, oh, no, I, I, was, uh, ahead, I, was, I was VT3. So okay. the, the, Red, the Red Knights, which is actually right next door to VT2. Yep, so. I remember the buildings. You know, so we were VT2 uh, going through the FAM stage, which they called it familiarization stage. Guys like me, I hardly had any flight time going into the Navy. And so it was kind of a steep learning curve for that. You know, you worked hard, you studied hard, you drive home at night exhausted, but you got to study to get up for the next morning flight. So you're always just, you know, flying, flying, flying type thing. So made it to my solo, uh, soloed, had a wonderful time with that. Just just went out, did straight level solo coming back. And then you move into your aerobatics phase where you get to do loops uh, half Cuban eights, Immelmans, those types of maneuvers, which are a lot of fun. You know, you're upside down pulling the G's um, yep. on that. Yep. So I got signed off to do my solo. Um, one morning, uh, I went in early to check in for my, uh, we called it precision acrobatics or PA solo. I think it was like 15, flight 15 or something. And I went in and in VT2, I don't know how three was, but you had to check in with the duty officer, the instructor on duty for that day. So I'd walk up as I did for every flight. Sir Ensign Briggs checking in, reporting for uh, precision aerobatic flight 15, sir. Well, as I did this, it was a blonde Marine captain sitting behind the desk. He was was about 6'3 and stuff. And he leans back like this and he looks at me and he said, Ensign Briggs, are you single? <laughs> well, who wants to know, sir? <laughs> all right. You're, you're a nice looking guy and all. Captain, but, uh... <laughs> I know we're a sea service, but really. <laughs> and I said, well, yes, sir. And he looks at me again and he said, are you seeing anybody? And I said, no, sir, I, I'm not. And he said, well, I've got a niece coming in or she's been here for a little while. She's kind of bored. She's she's coming in from Connecticut. And would you mind taking her out to dinner and a movie later? I, yes, sir. <laughs> It'll get me in an airplane. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> well, he's, he's a Marine captain. I'm an incident in the Navy, you know, 03 right. to 01. You know, I mean, what could I say? Yes, sir. 
you have this you, is like sir. a troll guarding the bridge <laughs> <laughs> yes you can fly a plane but first you must date my niece <laughs> that's right that's right the holy grail so i uh and he said uh he looks up at the board and he goes here's your aircraft here's where it's parked um i'll get everything arranged and i said yes sir and off i went so i started up went out did my solo as far as you could but back then you could do if you wanted to extend you could call go back to the squadron and said you know this is ensign briggs aircraft you know 234 i'd like to extend 15 more minutes to get permission so i called back because i was just having fun out there and uh he gets on the radio well john i got everything set up for you everything's great when you get back i'll give you the address come by our place later tonight (laughs) yes sir we'll be there so he landed, he gave me the address, and uh, went home, changed, showered, and everything, went up there. Um, met him, at, met the captain's wife, met the family, took her out. I was a real gentleman, got her back, you know, at a decent time. I didn't get in trouble from an 03. You know, I may have gone out once or twice, but that was about it. Um, but, and I hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen uh, Captain, Captain Velsbar is his name. And uh, I hadn't seen his first name was Peter and I hadn't seen him, I, I think, for two weeks or so, because I from the PA, you go into to do the Sims. So I was doing the simulator work and I finished up the advanced uh, what they call radio instrument training. I think it was simulator seven or so. And the next flight you go out and you do um, you do the flight in the airplane. And this flight is in the backseat of the T-34. And you take a bag and you pull it after you get airborne, you instruct right. it airborne and pull that over. Um, you guys know what happens after that. Your first flight in the airplane. It's what oh, we call yeah. vertigo. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was flying with a captain, Marine Captain Hall. Very super professional. Uh, we had a good briefing. I knew all my stuff going in there. My arrogance was yeah, a little coming back. But we took off. He said, okay, you can put the bag on. And as soon as the bag went on, every brain cell in my head just went. Don't know whether I'm upside down, inside Vertigo, out. <laughs> noise. Um, I couldn't remember the altitudes, the airspeeds, you know, flying the approaches. Um, just, I couldn't do anything right. It just, nothing went right that entire flight. And, you know, I tried to persevere, just keep going, trying to, you know, and it, toward the end, I started pulling it together. Like, why are you flying 105 knots? I need to be flying 120 knots, you know, type of thing. We get on the mm-hmm. ground. We go on the debrief, and he's just sitting there, and he's just looking at his notes, and he keeps looking at me, and he looks down at his notes. He looks at me, and he goes, I know you know your stuff. And I was sat there, and I thought, well, this is going to be my first down. And a first down is a failure of a flight. And the, back yeah. then, if you got three downs, you were gone. There was yeah. no question. Right, yeah. yeah. So, and let, let me jump in real quick uh, about that. So, every flight is graded as you're going through flight school in Navy Marine Corps. Uh, you get yes. an above average, an average, below average, or an unset, i.e. a down. On And if you get a down on something, then the flight is an unset and has to be repeated. Or I think maybe there may have been one point in time where they're doing like three blows on a given flight would get you to a, do it down too. But That's every flight was a check ride. Yeah. 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 So yeah. it was terrifying. I mean, you had to show up knowing your stuff. Or, you did. Uh, we were graded on, go I think, well. uh, 
14 to 20 items every flight. And there was yeah. always air work and head work was one of them. That was yeah. always the catch-all, right? I mean, right. you could have had a stellar flight, but uh, if, if you ticked them off or did something really screwed up, they'd get you on head work. Yep, so, that's, yeah. that's true. So he sat there and he looked at me and he goes, I know you know your stuff. And he goes, do you promise you're going to, you're really going to study? You're going to chair fly tonight? And I said, yes, sir, I will. I, I feel so bad, even though it was a Friday night. Yes, I will work on it this weekend. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you two belows, blah, blah, and, and going forward. I said, thank you, sir, and, and, and moved on, as, as we all did, because we were students. Yes. Whatever yeah. grade you gave you, you said, you know, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, yes, sir, and you moved yeah. on. So driving back home, uh, I had about a 20-minute drive to my apartment. I didn't know what to do. And the next morning, I woke up, and I thought, I should call Captain Belzebar. I did him a favor. He could owe me a favor. So I called him, and I told him the situation. And he said, John, why don't you just show up in the squadron tomorrow about 2 o'clock, and we'll go over instrument flying. I said, yes, sir, I'll be there. And I showed up, and he was there waiting. And he just started out with the basics. Let's get back to basics of instrument flying. There's three, three questions you got to ask. Where am I? Where am I going? And how am I going to get there? And he broke down into that way. Um, we, we, um, he started to, um, go over everything on instrument flying and my learning curve just shot way up. And he said, uh, what time do you fly tomorrow? Being tomorrow was Monday. And I said, well, actually, sir, I'm with you at 11 o'clock. And he said, great, show up. So I did. We went out and flew. And he get, we got back on the ground. You know, I did my thing. He didn't say much. I did my thing, you know, through all the procedures. We get on the ground. We get in the debriefing room. And he sits there and he looks at me and he said, you know, I never really say this to anybody, and it has nothing to do with yesterday, but yesterday was one of the best hops with a student I've ever had. You performed immaculately. I was like, wow. Well, thank you, sir. I mean, it's all credit back to you. So Peter and I remained friends for many years, and we still are friends today, but it's just amazing how a mentor just like that who takes a couple hours out of their own day to, to work with somebody who's struggling and with that, you know, I, after I flew with him, you know, we selected jets, props, helos. There were no props, or I'm, I'm sorry, no jets that week. So I went props and I ended up going to uh, NAS Corpus Christi for advanced training in the T-44. Right. Which that's, is the, yeah. uh, that's a King Air basically. Yeah. It's a twin, uh, turboprop King Air, yeah. which is. That's a handful of airplane to learn on. It was, <laughs> and it was a pure instrument panel. It was all instrument flying. You know, you go out and you do your FAMs initially to get used to the airplane, your familiarization flights. And then after that, oh, there I am. Uh, that yeah. uh, it's it's all instrument. And then the instructor, we sat in the left seat, as you can see in the photo, and the instructor would sit in the right seat. And on the right armrest of the instructor was called a God box. And on that inside that box, he'd flip the lid off. And they're all, there were, must have been a dozen or so toggle switches. Oh, and he could fail any of your instruments? He could just fail any instrument at any time, depending oh, on oh. what we were supposed to accomplish that day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's painful. 
You'd be flying yeah. out, and he You're would... You're back to not only, where am I? Where am I going, and how am I going to get there? But when they start filling instruments, you're going, and what's my name, and why am I here? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then why is that instrument turned like this? Yeah. When I... I'm not upside down. Yeah. Why is the instrument upside yeah. down? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the good ones yeah. would always fail it just as you were in a slight climb. So as right. you're looking at your instruments, it would show you... Uh, level oh. but you're actually climbing or descending you know type. okay so uh and that's that's the training but going back to what peter had helped me with what captain velsbar helped me with was um it was just incredible where it carried forward into that stage to go through advanced training and then get winged in january of 87 out of corpus christi yeah i'm gonna jump in real quick because i i yeah. got it like so the one of the biggest things that I struggled with when I was in HTs, uh, so that's the helicopter training squadron, um, is when we're doing the RI, uh, I don't know, we're somewhere around RI-12, RI-13 or something. So we're getting close to the RI-18 and you're doing partial panel um, instrument approaches in a helicopter. And I just remember absolutely struggling to keep the, the needle up. You know, when you're just trying to do that partial panel scan in a helicopter, it is a nightmare. Yes. But, you know, it's, it is what it is, but that's, yeah, I, I hated it. I hated it, hated it. It was, that was the only part of instrument flying that I didn't like, but uh, otherwise it was awesome. So, yeah. That, yeah. And that, that airplane, you know, you could do ILS approaches. Um, it, it taught you all about instrument flying in the clouds because, you know, the vertigo in the clouds, once you're in the clouds, you, your inner ear will tell you one thing but your instruments will tell you something different and you got to trust the instruments. Absolutely. You got to trust. Quick, quick story backing up the T-34s. Yeah. I, and I, I don't know why the name comes to me, but it's a, the, one of the instructors in VT-27. I recall his name as being Guy Close, Marine captain. And I believe it was him that was out on a, on a hop and he had a, a new, new instrument student in the back seat who was just killing it. And he's like, wow, man, this guy is really water in my eyes. It is amazing. And then he had him doing his standard rate turns, standard climbs, that sort of thing. And, and under one of the standard rate turns, he, he's looking out the window to the right, and the student's under the bag in the back, and he sees the silhouette of the student's helmet on the wing as a shadow. And he's like, so he looks at his mirrors, and, and the what he can see is in his mirror that the hood is up. The, the student has the hood up, and it's all good to go. So he hasn't due to turn again, just to be sure. And sure enough, he the student had taken the hood, pulled it forward, and attached it via Velcro to his glare shield, his dashboard panel, and then taken it from behind his head <laughs> and slid it all the way forward so he had lateral vision out, out the canopy yep. and could see what was up and what was down and when he was climbing and when he was turning. So he got uh, he got a below for head work or an unsat for head work and had to redo the flight. <laughs> But we were, I mean, we were told if you did that, <laughs> yeah, we were told if you did that, that was an automatic down. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yes, I do remember hearing stories um, about that over the, in the past. On that. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying was the other, the other saying yeah. they had in flight school, right? <laughs> but when it came, uh, yeah, well, so you needed to be able to do that. That's the whole thing. That's why, you know, that's obviously why it's a down, but it is pretty funny. Yeah. So, um, yeah, when I finished up in uh, Corpus Christi, you know, they, you got to pick uh, your, your squadron to go to. And I found out that uh, there was a squadron over in Spain, back to Europe, you know, where I competed in the track. And um, 
they did intelligence gatherings, a, you know, signal intelligence. Uh, we call it SIGIN for short, signals intelligence. And they went out and collected data. I thought, well, that sounds like the, the place I want to be. So I signed up for that, got the billet, got the assignment, went through other schools, um, went to Jacksonville to learn how to fly the P3, through the SEER school, leadership management training, and then, and then off, to, uh, off to Rota, Rota, Spain, which is in the southwest corner of Spain. It's, uh, you can't find it on a map. You look for a town called Cadiz, C-A-D-I-Z, yep. and it's just north of the, uh, the bay there, the Cadiz Bay. So, Beautiful. yeah. So I checked into the, uh, you know, I arrived over there, checked into my squadron and, um, you know, here the, the government had spent me, you know, a million, $2 million to train us as pilots. And you show up in the squadron and they said, okay, you're going to be the, uh, Hermo, the human resource management officer. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm a, I, that? I, I, I'm a pilot. <laughs> I'm a pilot. I want to fly. I want to fly. And right. I go, well, no, you got to, you got to do your, you know, your collateral. It's the, yeah. The SLJO. You are now the shitty little jobs officer. Welcome to the squadron. Ensign. <laughs> well, so I go, well, okay. What, what I can't remember who I asked. I said, what, uh, what's the human resource management officer do? And they said, well, we're not sure, but go downstairs <laughs> and you'll see a little room. It's unmarked and go down the hallway and at the end of the hallway, you know, that's, that's where you're going to be. It's like, okay. And they said, well, the good news is you report right to the executive officer who was commander Quigley at the time. Okay. I said, okay, that's great. So I go down there, find the hallway, go down, open the door. And it's a, basically a closet with a desk and there's a petty officer sitting there and I introduced myself and he said, you know, he was petty officer. I can't remember his name. And I said, can you tell me what we do here? And he said, well, we, we deal with kind of spousal cases. And I thought, well, great. I'm single. What do I know about spousal cases? You know, here again, my arrogance is coming back. And he, he said, well, I said, how often do we do this? And he goes, well, you know, we're a squadron of about 750, um, People assigned to the squadron. It was a huge squadron, seven hundred fifty. That is big. Places. Holy smokes! How many airplanes did you have in that squadron? Well, we had. This is interesting. We had two types of airplanes. We had okay. the uh, EP3s, and I believe we had seven of those, six Mission Birds, okay. and then the A3 Whales. Do you guys remember? That's the EP3 there. Yep. Uh, so for our listeners, I'm putting a picture of an EP3 up on the screen. Um, the uh, which is a standard P3 with a whole bunch of bubbles on the belly and the in the yeah. uh, back that uh, he can't talk about. <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah, the black, you've heard of a black box type stuff. Yeah. And you think black yeah. on there was uh, pretty much uh, sensitive equipment picking up. Uh, electronic uh, countermeasures, Intel gathering. Intel ga- gathering. Yeah. We, we didn't do any jamming, but it was just uh, Intel gathering okay. type thing. Uh, we had the A3 whale, you know, the twin engine uh, A3 that had been around since just after the Second World War. Right. Big, so that's big why three-man crew. Uh, yep. they all, the A3D was often referred to, I think we talked about it on the last show or a show before that the A3D stood for all three dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah. They didn't have an ejection seat. They had parachutes to jump out of that thing. If they had, yeah, they didn't have ejection so. seats. The air force had a B, they called it the B 66, I believe Yeah. Uh, that, but, uh, with 750, um, personnel assigned to the squadron, something was bound to, is how the petty officer put it, something bound to happen. And sure enough, a few minutes later, knock on the door. Um, 
a wife comes in and says her husband has been deployed. She has no money to pay the bills. So we arranged to, to get over to dispersing, you know, type thing. So um, what was really good about that job was I got to meet with um, Commander Quigley, the XO at the time. And he was a he, he was an outstanding skipper. He was my favorite skipper because he I had good skippers, but he was my favorite because he never talked to you behind his desk. If you if you knocked on his door, went into his office, he always came around from around his desk and sat down at a table with you and then discussed the issue. But yeah. never would he do that behind a desk. And that's Very cool. You know, that was an example of leadership I picked up on early on that, you know, when you sit behind the desk, you think you have the authority and the power over somebody. And he never he never you'd almost forget he's an 05. That, that's nice. how he was. He was just so personal about stuff. Um, on it. That's, that's so we got awesome. to work through issues, legal issues, things like that. Um, and then I got uh, moved over to the training department. And in the training department, um, the department head was uh, Lieutenant Commander Rick Huska, really good guy. We got along great. And he looked at me and he looked at my stuff and he said, you know, most pilots here don't make electronic warfare aircraft commander until they're lieutenants, O3s in the squadron. You think he could do it as a lieutenant junior grade? I'm like, well, yes, sir. I'll, I'll put more. I'll put forth the effort. So in our squadron, you had to do. You had to learn systems, uh, just for the aircraft alone. And you would walk around. This was your. This is your life. You, I don't know if you could see it, but this is yeah. called a PQS, Pilot Qualification System. And this is how you worked your way up to become an electronic warfare aircraft commander. And you had to sit down and discuss systems. Um, the P3 community is very system oriented. Hydraulics, um, electrical, prop. The prop was a, was a major one, obviously, for that. Fuel system. You, you had to be able to sit down with either a flight engineer or another instructor type pilot in the squadron and describe and, and go into detail of every system on the aircraft. And then as they did, they, they would... They would sign you off, you know, on each, on nice. each. Okay. Yeah. This was the life. If you lost this book and had to start over. Oh, you know, God help you. On that. On the other, <sighs> on the other end of it, we had to learn about um, what the mission was about. A lot, some of it's classified, I won't go into that, but we had to know about all the Soviet ships, all the aircraft, the missiles, the radars, yeah. uh, all of this. So when you heard him in the back, with a senior evaluator who's usually um, the senior officer in the back talking about various radar systems, we had to know, for instance, if a certain country was going to arm their SA-5 missiles, which were designed to, to shoot down very slow-moving aircraft as we were and to bug out type thing. So, oh, I mean, overall, it was great. It was, it was really difficult to learn that. But at the same time, I mean, Rick really pushed me to be studying he, you know, contact me, uh, make sure that I knew the systems, that I was on board, I was on track, that I was going to get it done by time I, um, before I made, while I was still a lieutenant junior grade. So nice. that was really good that he kind of took me under his arm and, and really worked with me on that stuff. So I worked my way up to uh, aircraft commander, got signed off for that. And then we had a mission board where you have five or six uh, mission qualified that would just kind of grill you for questions, maybe yeah. 
five, that, five that, to six that was going to ask that, you know, if you're, if you had like a board or something that you had to go through yeah. at the end, cause that's, that's what, uh, when I was still flying in the coast guard, that's what we had to do. And there was total same deal. You know, there's a whole personal qualification standard that you had to go through as well as a whole syllabus hop, you know, with all sorts of flights and, you know, search patterns and, and all of that. Did you guys have obviously had standardization checks, like once a year and stuff oh, like yes. that too. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot the group was called, but they would come in and then we'd spend, I don't know, maybe a month prepping for those tests. Yep. Um, you know, and um, I think I, I could probably still pass those tests today. That's, that's how much they were grilled into my head. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Those, you will not if forget. If they put those so. questions in front, I could probably just go through the test. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let me back up a second, though, because <laughs> you had an interesting number there a minute ago. You were talking about how there was about 750 people in the squadron and two different types of airplanes. But uh, why? Why were there so many people in the squadron? Describe. So an EP3, there were two pilots. Well, and then and then who else? That was that was not a small airplane. And you, you generally had a couple people in the back with you. <laughs> Well, we had we usually flew missions, eight-hour missions with three pilots. Sometimes we go longer, depending on what we needed. Um, we flew missions for the fleet, um, NSA, no such agency, DIA. We got tasked by various groups to fly different types of missions. Huh? Okay. We usually flew with three pilots, um, eight to twelve hours. Um, excuse me on our missions, and I think in our squadron. We had 150 officers um, okay. in the squadron, but because we had the A3, um, you know, you had more personnel for that side too, and that's why it was so big. And I think it's just because the Navy just said, "Oh, well, let's instead of opening up the second base up, let's just put them all into Rota." Right. So. But I guess what I'm asking also then is, is you had duty stations in the back of your uh, in the back of your airplane? How how many stations were in the back of that airplane, roughly on, on average? You know. I'm, uh, six, seven, eight, nine. We had about uh, fourteen. So we okay, fourteen. Someone take. So there a break. were people working in the back, running all kinds of computers and screens and comm equipment and that kind of stuff, right? Right. Yeah. Yes, we had we okay. had various people back there. We had people with curtains around them that you couldn't see what they were doing. Um, <laughs> you aren't. <laughs> tell me, you weren't allowed to know. <laughs> I basically didn't want to know. So we. <laughs> So we, um, um, you know, so we we actually deployed to Athens, Greece, to fly most of our missions, uh, either down south or to the east into okay. uh, Eastern Mediterranean, and then we'd either uh, deploy up to England to fly up in the Baltic, type okay. thing. And so, nice. yeah, so I, you know, flying in the Baltic was was fun because I think you know we were out there uh, one time and we got intercepted by a. Um, a Soviet SU-24 or SU-27 flanker off our wing. That's that's the one. Uh, Soviet so if, if you want to see this on you, go to our YouTube channel or Rumble channel and look at this show. And we're about uh, I'm going to say about 40 minutes in, and that's the picture of the flanker that he's talking yeah. about. So it's got the yep. Soviet star on the on the uh, tail, but looking under where the pilot sits, um, we believe that it was part of either the Lithuanian or Latvian Air National Guard. So we like we have the Air National Guard here in the United States. Those countries also had their own Air National Guard with their with their symbols on that. Yeah. So 
One of the things that I picked up on it is if you look on the back of that jet, there's a great big panel sticking up with a post behind it. That's a hydraulic piston that's pushing up the dude's speed brake. He's trying to stay slow with it. That's got to be a speed brake or something. Yeah. (laughs) So so that... For yeah. those who are can't look, can't see it, you know, it looks like a, it's been, and I think it was the equivalent to, or the Soviet answer to the F-15. Yeah, looks about like that. Yeah, yeah it's kind yeah. of a combination of the F-15 and F-14, I think. Yeah. Um, there's He's a large got some armament under his wing. Yes, he was <laughs> yeah. fully loaded with missiles, no yeah. external fuel tanks. And I think at the time, he flew with us for a little bit, and then there was a British Nimrod, which is a four-engine uh, uh jet that the brits used and that similar mission right for same, same type of mission they flew yeah. obviously flew higher we were like twenty four thousand feet the brits were up around thirty thousand feet he'd hang with us and then he'd go up there and hang with them we could see their contrail and he, he stayed with them and then he came back with us and i think we had figured he was airborne for about three and a half hours and when they sent that report in we get, we got a response back on there's no way a flanker can fly three and a half hours without external fuel tanks we said well he did he was there. He was. there he was. He was there. Yeah. So there he was, <laughs> off up that wing. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's you know the Cold War, the Soviets, and the U.S. and stuff. But you know, his pilots were all friendly. We were waving. He'd wave back. He kept his distance. There, there was no threat at all, um, yeah. at all when he was when he was flying over there. But uh, yeah, you know, um, we'd fly uh, in. Um, in the Med, off, off Libya, Egypt, we'd fly off Syria, just collecting everything we could. They'd file the reports and send them in on that. So it was a lot of fun. But uh, one thing that uh, did happen to us was we were, um, my third mission, I finally, you know, as a new aircraft commander, still a JG, um, electronic warfare aircraft commander still okay. a jg we deployed to athens greece and on my third mission i think it was in february of eight march of my february march of 89 uh we were flying tasked to fly out to the east um my uh my co-pilot uh, bob o'neill great guy okay. you know he he took it off he flew and he's over there and he's sweating and i go are you doing okay and he goes i don't know i just don't have it today now um, one thing about these ep3s um these airplanes were older than I was. They were P3 prototypes built in 1960, and I was born after that. These are old aircraft, and the autopilots rarely work, so we we're always hand flying these, which was right. fine. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And these did they retire flying. the P3s? That's still flying. They just retired them, but I think uh, my sister squadron still flying the EP3s right now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I go, Bob, you okay? And he goes, Yeah, just just take the controls. I'm 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 just feeling exhausted. And I said, Okay. So I took the controls, and I, you know, like, God, this doesn't feel right. Um, you know, where you have the hydraulics that that work the flight controls, like power on, steering. Yeah, like power <laughs> steering. You know, you have the hydraulic system that works all the flight controls on on most most aircraft nowadays, except the you know the small private ones. Sure. Oh God, this this doesn't feel right. So Bob got out of the seat to take a break. And, um, and the other pilot, Mike Dzlowski, he gets in the seat and I go, Mike, feel this. Because this, this isn't right. And we're, we're heading east, just south of Cyprus. And we're feeling it. It's just, just, just like, you know, we keep thinking, is it us? Is it us? You know, just having a bad time. And, and so this is your third mission? Is it yeah, aircraft third commander? Mission, aircraft commander. I was still a JG at the time. <laughs> 
We, we so no, were you were you able to um, to bank at all, or were you? We could bank. We okay. could turn the airplane. It was just the the elevators, the part that made the nose go up okay. and down. You know, as we used to say, houses get bigger, houses get smaller. Right. Yep. Or in that part, the ocean gets bigger, the ocean gets smaller. <laughs> so, I and the, uh, we had a flight engineer who always sat between us as, as the pilots. They'd sit back a little bit, and we had a procedure that if your hydraulic boost package failed, he could pull the elevator control to remove the hydraulic pressure and you could fly manually, but it took a lot, a lot of effort to fly it that way too. And he suggested that. And at the same time, I, I thought we're not going to make it. I don't think we can complete the mission. Um, just this doesn't feel right. So uh, the petty officer was Grzbowski was his name. He reached down, pulled the uh, elevator control handle and all of a sudden the nose just went pitched up so uh, mike and i were no no, no 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 <laughs> that is not good i mean you're starting to already pre approaching stall speed and this the nose just went straight up mike and i were fighting it bob was holding on and um ed Car lieutenant ed carmody in the back who's the character he came up he looked at us. What the hell are you guys doing up here? Oh, he didn't even say that. He knew <laughs> something was wrong, and they went back and shut everything down and put all their crypto gear back into these boxes in case they had to check them out in the water type thing. So we were, you know, as soon as it and that nose up, Mike and I just pressed, pressed. I mean, we pushed and pushed and got the nose finally under control. And I said, that's it. We're declaring an emergency. We're, we're going to go in. We got to divert in. The only closest, uh, the only closest base we could find was – that was nearby was the Royal Air Force Base Akrotiri, which is on the southern tip of Cyprus. Okay. We were already speaking to them on the on the uh, frequencies, and we we just declared the emergency and got in. Mike got out of the seat. Bob got back in the seat, and we were just fighting this thing. It was, the nose just kept popping up and down. How, how and far down. were you from there? Uh, um, probably Inf infinitely far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Too that's far. a good question. I'd have to look. That's a good question, Sticks. I'd have to look. We were probably about 150 miles away. Yeah, um, too far. Oh, yeah. good God. Yeah. Yeah. We no, straight, that's, uh, and you're over the water. We're over the water. And Day uh, or night. East, and we're turning back. And we declared the emergency to, to go in there. And we're fighting this thing. And remember, we had one procedure that, you know, that basically said, if your controls are giving you troubles, pull the handle. Everything's fine. Go land. Well, the problem was there was no procedure for the, the situation to keep repeating itself over and over, where now we're, where we're supposed to be able to fly the airplane, we're fighting against, you know, three, there's 3,000 pounds of pressure per square inch of hydraulic fluid in the system, and we're either working with it or against it, and you couldn't tell what the airplane was going to do with the nose. The nose would pop up, the nose would go down type thing, so... We worked it in, declared the emergency. Um, everybody was strapped in in the back. Um, we got the airplane in. We um, the controllers were great. The the brick controllers were great uh, getting us in. Yeah, no, hang on a minute though. So uh, rather than go back at the end, tell tell us a little bit about what was going on in the back of the airplane too, because you you had how many people back there? Quite we had let's see about twenty plus people back there. Yeah. 
Oh my yeah. god! So you got an airplane full of people, got and they know they know things are not in perfect shape up in the front office. Well, <laughs> it's it's funny how you know you find out things after all of this because we're yeah. we're up front. And, you know, as pilots, we're just concentrating on get the airplane down safely. Yeah, I mean, if we couldn't do it, we're going to have to bail the crew out. And do you bail them out over the base? Do we bail them out over the water? Do we bail you know that type of thing? I mean, this is all going through my mind while while we're on the on the descent, you know, going in. And, and you guys I, we are carrying were just parachutes? What's that? You're carrying parachutes? We had parachutes, but the four of us up front were so busy trying to control the airplane, we didn't, uh, we never put them on. But w- I found out later after we landed, everybody had their chutes on in the back in case we oh, did man. have to go. <laughs> <laughs> They're ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> we're out of here. I don't know about yeah. you. I'm well, getting out. Now, I guess that's better than having the pilots with their parachutes on <laughs> and the rest of the crew in the back being clueless as to that there might be a problem. <laughs> that's, that's so true. That's so true. So, so you lose control of the elevator. Now, how how were you? Were you obviously were using power to control the, the nose attitude and flaps. What did you actually have to do to get the uh, plane on the deck? We used, we used the power. We only had manual trim on our airplane. So it was, you know, we tried to use that. Uh, best we could. Um, we, Petr Officer Grzbowski would say, okay, I'm going to push the handle back in, get ready. And he'd push it back in. And then, you know, at that time we were already, you know, straight on the controls, getting ready to, is it going to pitch uh-huh. down or up? <laughs> and he'd pull it back. What are you going to do? So, um, yeah, uh, the other, uh, we, we did get it on the ground safely. We landed in, 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 um, Akrotiri, tags it in and shut down. Um, you find out things later. I mean, the Brits were just outstanding about it. But the short of it is when maintenance came, the they found out there was a crack in the elevator boost package. So if you think about your car having power steering and you want to turn to the right, the actuator would put pressure in the cylinder to push your wheels to the right. Same right. with left. But if you got pressure building up on both sides, you can't really turn the wheel. It's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing we found out, so it was a crack in the pressure, and it was building up 3,000 3, PSI on both sides of the cylinder. And every time uh, Petty Officer would, would pull that handle, it would relieve it for a second, but that pressure would build right back up. The oh other my thing God. was terrifying. Right. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. So, so essentially, to, to the listeners that are not pilots, what, what they're dealing with is the airplane is slowly getting less and less controllable. They are not, soon not going to have the ability to get the nose to go up or down. They can turn left or right, but but that's it. And if the nose yeah. starts gets locked in the going up position, it'll go up till the wing runs out of lift, and then it'll fall out of the sky like a brick fecal matter house. Yeah, that was that was a consideration yeah. also. Um, the other thing we learned after when maintenance went through it, as with aircraft, you have your yoke. You know, you pull back, turn left and right. Well, those are on cables that go back all the way to the tail. And those cables require pulleys, you know, to make things easy. So they roll smoothly between the rolls. The cable rolls smoothly over the cable. We found out later, too, that there were 125 pulleys between the front yoke and the elevators. And we had broken 75 of them just trying to maintain control of the aircraft. Oh dear! Not God. only were we fighting the hydraulics, we were fighting the friction of the cables on broken pulleys, uh, working our way back and forth, trying trying to get that nose up and down. Your airplane's falling apart. 
Yeah. Well, they were older than I was. <laughs> yeah. Good God. Oh, my God. That is just so, so terrifying. And, and quick back of the napkin math from a Marine here, that's still, that's 60% of the police are now out of commission. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> so, yeah, it was, uh, it was an exciting event for sure. Uh, you find out things later. Um, like I said, we didn't have our parachutes on. Everybody else did. Um, Petty Officer Antoine, who kind of led the back two for the, uh, the enlisted, he, I, we, because we flew eight-hour missions, we had a huge refrigerator in the back that contained all our box lunches. And he went back and grabbed his lunch, and somebody said, what are you doing? He goes, hey, if I'm bailing out, I'm not going out hungry. So next thing <laughs> they know, they were throwing out box lunches left and right to everybody. And, you know, God, I hope they left four for us, at least, if we had to bail out. But, right. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just, it's just oh, funny man. things you, you talk about afterwards, you, you know, you land and things. Um, oh, I guess uh, our secure communications person kind of misread what was going on. And they, he sent a message out to the world, which went back to the squadron that said, we are having nav problems. And he didn't quite <laughs> really understand what was going on. And here the okay. whole, the rest of the U.S. Navy thought, how can an airplane in the Eastern Med have navigation problems and be oh, lost? Type yeah. so, uh, uh, Go north the till there's triangle. land, go east till there's land, or go south till there's, there's, land. Till there's land. Yes. Yeah. So if you know how the shape of the Mediterranean is. Yes. Or west till there's land for the most yeah. part. You got you you to really thread that land. needle to get out on the west. Yeah. So, yeah, there were little things like that that you learned about. But the, but the Royal Air Force, the wing commander was outstanding. He was very professional. Um he said, uh, I'm glad to get you on the ground. Um, it, it, is a, it is an interesting time for us because they were swapping out their um, Royal Air Force F-4 Phantoms and bringing in tornadoes that day. And they ended up diverting them with the tankers to some other base just to handle us. I mean, that's how, that's that's how awesome. the warm feeling you, you get you know, as an ally with, with, uh, with the Brits on that issue alone when oh, the priority priority you got. Yeah. That's yeah. Emergency. On that's that. So very cool. After that, um, you know, I got back to the squadron and I, um, you know, debriefed with the skipper at the time, what, what had happened with commander Quigley. He was now the skipper, you know, told him the whole story and he's just like, yeah, thank you, John, you know, and all that. And I said, well, it was a team effort. It wasn't just me and that. So I got encouraged to write a, an article for approach magazine. That's the, Naval Aviation Safety Magazine that they would put out every month. Right. And I actually got a, um, they, they published it in the December 1989 issue um, for uh, uh, my article and, you know, others, other safety events, nice. others that did. Okay. So awesome. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take a quick break and listen to the folks that Babel have to offer to the listeners. Then I want to come back and talk about some more of your uh, experiences, uh, be it with track and the mentorship and the rest of your career. Okay. Did you know that bilinguals outperform monolinguals in tasks requiring working memory? That means Babbel isn't just a language learning app, it's a tool for sharpening your brain's ability to hold and process information. This fall, start speaking a new language in just three weeks with Babbel. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or getting lost in language apps that feel like just another game, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons crafted by over 150 language experts are the real 
deal. In just three weeks, you can start having real conversations. And here's the thing. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. Everything you learn is rooted in real-life situations. It's so easy. The last time I was in France, I confidently ordered food and asked for directions without having to constantly check the translation apps. It felt really good. And when you get an answer right in Babbel, there's this satisfying sound. Listen to this. Apprendre une nouvelle langue est plus facile que je ne le pensais. Which translates, learning a new language is easier than I thought. And this sound is the satisfying sound you hear when you get the pronunciation right. Babbel actually works interactively with you to make sure you sound good, not just look good. Studies from prestigious institutions like Yale and Michigan State University keep proving Babbel's efficiency. In fact, using Babbel for just 15 hours is like wrapping up a full semester at college. And with over 10 million subscriptions sold, trust me, Babbel is the real deal for real conversations. Here's a special, limited-time deal for our listeners. Get started right now with 55% off your Babbel subscription. Remember, this offer is exclusive to our listeners, so visit babbel.com slash so there I was. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash so there I was. Rules and restrictions may apply. Go to babbel.com slash so there I was for 55% off your subscription. Were any of your other uh, emergencies even close to, to that much fun? Or? Uh, we had a few. I think I had three uh, three engine landings. Um, the oh. old tip light, which is okay. a, a little magnetic detector in the uh, uh, engine, you know, somewhere in the engine. In, in the oil, yeah, oil yeah, sump. Oil, yeah. And it picks up microfi, you know, fragments. And it once, once it has enough metal to make a contact, you get what I call a chip light. Chips light comes on. And then you do a precautionary engine shutdown. Yeah, so that tells you basically that your engine is is grinding metal parts off within itself and starting to eat itself yep. alive. Yeah, I had three I of those. I think I saw one one night on a. I was on a DC ten down in Florida, and they had the uh, a chip light, and the mechanic pulled it. That bolt, had, it looked like a chia pet. <laughs> it oh. was like. Nothing I'd ever seen before. Usually, you get a chip light. There's, you know, there's maybe eight or ten chips on that thing. This thing was covered. It looked like hair standing up on the end of that magnetic bolt. It was terrifying that that engine was still. I've seen those still, too. It's it's really interesting when they pull those. Yeah, and uh, you, you guys in helicopters, man, that was uh, holy smokes. So yeah, well, when I had a, I was trying to think how far offshore we were. I want to say I want somewhere between thirty or forty miles, um, and uh, we had a main gearbox chip light. And I told that's you that like, thing's a whirling death trap. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, yeah, we're we're making a beeline to the closest point of land, and uh, yeah, but that that got our attention. But and that was pretty. There was there was some good recent chips there. So, and we used to get chip lights on the engines all the time. Uh, that was pretty common. Usually it was fuzz. Uh, you could just clear it off and, you know, you could uh, press on. So, <clears throat> yeah, you know, uh, it's helicopters. They're cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least you had three engines. You ever any ever do less than three? You ever shut down an entire side or? 
Well, interesting. One time uh, we did get the chip light. So we shut down, uh, I think, the number three engine. And then we found out as we went through uh, clouds with icing, the number two bleed would not turn off. The, the bleed valve would not close. And that was blowing hot air onto sensors and stuff. So as we headed back over Rota, you know, I'm, fl- I'm flying over the field about a thousand feet or so. And, you know, we already told the squadron, hey, we're coming back in, you know, on three engines. And as we're, we decided we didn't have any secondary on the number three engine with chip light, but we had to shut down the number two engine. So I called for, let's do a restart of number three. As we're flying over the field, everybody is out there looking and, and seeing the, the airstream. We use the airstream to um, spin okay. the top to get it back up to speed to, re, to relight the engine. And now everybody's thinking, oh, my God, they did, they, their, their engine failed to feather. They have got an engine failed to feather, which is a pretty severe thing because of all that drag. Of the that was drag. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. All that extra drag on there. And they're calling us. And finally, we just called them and said, no, we had, we had to do a uh, shutdown of number two and restart number three. Everything's fine. We'll be on the ground in five, you know, five, ten minutes. Yeah, so I'm busy gonna, right now. Leave us alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to back up for like for our non-aviation uh, listeners. So feathering the prop is is a huge piece, and what that does is that turns the propeller so that the blade is going in line Not, with ninety the, with degrees the to the wind. Yeah, right. Yeah. So because if you don't feather that prop, it creates a massive amount of drag. Um, so it's like sticking your hand out the window at eighty miles an hour. Yeah, exactly. Flat, you know, flat as opposed to lift. Oh man! Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Dix. And uh, yep. yeah, that's that's you know it's important because if you're landing with all that extra drag, that's that's a lot more aircraft to handle bringing in. So yeah, on that. But uh, Could, uh, would it fly on two engines? Oh yeah, we we actually practiced. We didn't okay. shut the two engines. Um, when you go down low, uh, generally the P3s who who did the submarine hunting, and we did it also. You could you would go down low, shut one engine down as you're flying low. The airplane would fly just fine. You wouldn't even know it. Okay. And if you got light enough, you could actually shut down two engines and, and cruise around at low level, taking photos of, of Soviet ships and stuff. Um, so you did that for fuel savings? Yep, for fuel savings. What are yeah. you nuts? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's you know that's what you actually the, for. the uh, Coast Guard yeah. C-130s do that to extend their range too. So as far okay. as I, as far as I know. So yeah, they, uh, that's, it's not a uncommon practice. But. Yeah. Yeah. As long, as long as you, your propellers feather, it's, it's all good. Yeah. Okay. Well, on the YouTube channel, I'll, I'll bring up a, a, a ship or two here. Um, f- for those that are not, for that are watching, if you want to go watch it on YouTube, uh, youtube.com. So this so is a, com slash YouTube. It'll get you there. Yeah. So this is a, uh, Soviet sovereignty ship. Um, that uh, we took a picture of when we went down low. It was in the Mediterranean at the time. You can see all those tubes. Those are surface-to-surface missiles. They're basically designed to take out an aircraft carrier. Okay. Um, this this actual ship, its sister ship, the Moscow, was sunk, I think, by the Ukrainians last year um, in the Black Sea. Okay. okay. On that so, one. And then a- as far as our missions go, we had to name all those mis- missiles, the radars associated with the missiles, and if you really look at the photos, you can see I could probably pick out right now 12, 14 radars right now just, just looking at that photo. Right. Yeah, it's little, little, all the little domes and such on yeah. different parts of the Right. You have long-range radars. You have yeah. targeting radars. You have mid-range radar, uh, radars. 
you know, type thing. And that's, that's what we had to know for our mission board. That was just part of it. You know, I, I, I kind of get that, but that's, uh, it, it's cool to know it, but as a pilot, it kind of didn't matter to you. You had to keep the blue side up, the, you know, the gray side down, what, what the radars were on those boats and that kind of stuff. That, well, that's the thing heard, I found. You, you know, if you knew what the targeting radars were and you heard somebody in the back, you know, say this just went active. Yeah. Then, then you may want to consider diving for the deck. Okay. You don't, you don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, at one time, um, a Soviet ship had fired on a P3 as it was flying by, but they think it was a blank. They're still not sure about it, but we were out there at the time and they did a you know recall. We had to get out of there, but it, it just happens. It's just, uh, you know, that's just, how it how it was out there between us and you know and the Soviets out there it was just a little a little bit of a a chess game going on the entire time. What are they yeah. going to do? What are we going to do? You know, type things. Yeah. And Taco was listening. He points out uh, in a comment that uh, you know they they didn't care either. They just nuked everybody. They radiated all their sailors. Yeah, uh, okay. they didn't want to have kids anyways. Uh, no such thing as Soviet OSHA. <laughs> <laughs> so. Holy cow. But no, I just find that an interesting contrast betwixt the communities in naval aviation. Uh, the single seat guys, we had to know that, uh, you know, how many wings, how many wings were on the airplane? Uh, two. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys had to know, you know, how, how many rivets on the uh, cowling of the number three engine. And <laughs> Yeah, it was just about like that. You know, yeah, springs and weights yeah. and, uh, you know, electrical system. And what if this fails? All, all the mindless it? knowledge, and and I'm look, lest someone take my uh, my criticism wrong, it, it's more it's more poking fun than than criticism, because I, I in reading Chuck Yeager's book, I remember he talked about how many a good pilot died because they didn't know their systems cold, and that's how he credited many of his own uh, saves that he saved himself because he knew his systems cold, and uh, there's no fault in the P three guys. You guys knew your systems cold. I would say we were professional and we knew, you know, the old joke was we didn't live, we didn't live or uh, we, we didn't know our emergency procedure checklist in the Harrier. We lived it, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, and there's some truth to that. You had to know that stuff in order to survive when things went, went to crap on you. But it it just was interesting to me how the, the more crew on an airplane, the more you guys poked at each other constantly. What do you know about this? What do you know about that? (laughs) Oh, oh yeah, no, totally. You know what's funny is I so my approach, my kids, unfortunately, had to learn how to drive from me, um, and so I took the naval aviators approach in teaching my kids how to drive. So one of the things that I do with them is I would take them over to a parking lot and get them driving around the parking lot, um, and then reach over and shut the ignition off or turn the engine off to accessory. So. The lights still stay on, but this way they're able to learn that they can still control the car and bring the car to a stop. Um, and that actually paid off once because one of my kids inadvertently shut off the engine. You know, his knee came up, hit the ignition, and he was able to get the car off to the side of the road. Well, that's so, outstanding. You know? <laughs> and yeah, I, I did and that I, with my kids. I, I took them to some place, um, you know, the where am I thing. I would, I would <laughs> take them off to some neighborhood they didn't know about. Okay, now you got to take me home. Yep. And that's how they pass their, you know, their check ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, yep. And they, my kids get a, a check ride, you know, about once a month. I go back out with them, check and see what they're that's doing. Great. And um, what's also kind of funny is uh, I make them I'm too terrified draw- to ride with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I, I make them draw a map out, you know, by yeah. hand from memory. And uh, so, yeah, they, they unfortunately get the naval aiders, aviators approach to, uh, you know, teaching uh, kids how to drive. So, but. That's oh, good. Good. You know. Yeah, that was uh, pretty much my time in Rota. You know, I did some other fun things, too, but uh, it was a great squadron to be associated with. And after that, I went to um, NAS Kingsville. They were uh, the Navy was phasing out the e, the A3, and they were looking for, you know, ES3 pilots. And I thought, well, I've, I've got the EP3 side of it. You know, I could go out and fly the ES3, ES3 and and uh, put in for it. And they said, okay, well, and my skip, uh, Commander Officer Skipper, uh, Commander Quigley said, okay, I looked into it, and they'll have to send you to Kingsville to be an instructor in jets, you know. And my, I was like, well, yes, sir. Of course, my brain was like, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Something different, you know, because yeah. I wanted to fly anything I could touch, anything. Anything I can get it my hands on, and, and and Kingsville was great experience. Also, when I got there, um, I, I was over at the wing, and one of the senior commanders came over to me and, and asked, "John, do you do you know how to fly an ILS?" Well, I hadn't flown an ILS since the T forty four days, um, because our airplanes were sold. Uh, they were so old that we didn't have ILS. I think we had a localizer signal, which was basically you know the, a signal that came from the that come from the runway. Would come up and you pick it, you know, you tune in on it, and it would just say, "Okay, the the, the runway's that way." Just right, just right. head that way, right. you know, type thing. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. jump in for a quick second. So, uh, for instrument landing system ILS, um, imagine a string being drawn from the runway back up to a point up in the air, and you are going to follow that string down. Um, you have instruments that gives you horizontal and vertical guidance. Okay, right. Thanks. Yeah. But with the localizer, you didn't have that string going up. You just said the runway is right over there. But right. yeah. when they asked me that, I said, oh, yes, sir, I know how to fly an ILS. And they said, okay, great. You're on the T-45 project because we don't know anything about an ILS. And the, and the, and the uh, goshawk has, has got that. I said, sure, I'd love to. So I, I jumped on that program, too. And it was a great group that I was working with in, in Kingsville. That's the shot right there of all of us. I'm up there on the wing. And uh, – those were all of us involved as the uh, first uh, getting the Gosshawk uh, up and running in Kingsville, huh? Yeah, uh, first nice. non-test pilots all qualified to fly the Gosshawk. That does not look like it's fun to fly. No, oh, it was, a, it was a <laughs> lot of fun to fly. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, very cool. Oh man. So, um, do, uh, any any interesting uh, experiences as an instructor in that thing? Uh, in the, in the 45. Yeah. We didn't instruct students. Uh, we just, oh, took, my, uh, my understanding. Okay. So you were just getting other instructors up to speed. Yeah. We were getting, uh, well, actually we were, uh, flying it for uh, like a year just to test fly it. Um, okay. before the instructors would count, the students would get uh, signed into VT 21, which was the first squadron to, to get okay. those aircraft on it. So, so they, so- uh, so were you generating like, were you like, and also potentially generating like the NATOPS procedures for this? We were working on it. Yes. Um, the NATOPS procedures were uh, pretty good. We would add to it um, based on what we saw on things. I mean, the good thing for me was being an instructor in Kingsville in the T2s, they told me initially, well, you're not a, you know, a tactical air guy. You're not a fighter guy. So you're not going to know anything about, um, you know, formation flying or um, TAC air or air to air, or we did air to air gunnery type thing with, four, you know, four airplanes um, going against a banner being towed by another airplane. Yeah. 
Well, when I got on the T45 project, they said, well, we got to get you all these quals. So they sent me back over with the T2s and then I did some with the A4s to get qualified on all of that. So, and nice. also allowed me with the T2 to get qualified to, uh, to get some carrier landings in with the T2 Buckeye. And that, that was a great experience for me too, because being a P3 guy, that's, that's, that's rare to get. Right. Yeah. Told me that's that awesome. one to, told me that one to kick in the pants, huh? Going to the yeah. boat. Oh yeah. It's exciting. That. Still, I think I've said it on here too at one point, but uh, the first time I got shot off the front of the Lexington in the T2, I was screaming like a little girl out of just sheer delight and joy. I was like, oh, that's awesome. And as soon as the cat stroke let go and I was airborne off the bow, I, I literally had to look down and go, did my engines quit? Because it was so much quieter even though right. both engines are running at full power it was so much quieter as opposed to getting shot, shot down the cat stroke that i was like oh my god that's, oh, that's what i remember and my first was at night because uh they took us instructors in later oh. in the day and by the time oh. they got me to the catapult it was at it was nighttime yeah and you're I, experienced you can handle it what are you scary. I shot off the cat and then I'm like, I don't know, 50 feet above the water. And I go, God, did the, did the air boss say I could climb? And finally I just had to ask, is that okay for me to climb to head back to Kingsville? And he kind of gave me a, you know, yeah, climb, get out of here, get out get of away from the water. Dumbass. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, that was his tone, but I deserved it. <laughs> oh man. So yeah. what was it like trapping for the first time? Well, it was really interesting. You know, I'd work with students for about two years, just, you know, in the pattern. Um, when I finally figured out how to fly the ball, which is the Fresnel lens yeah. um, that we did with the angle of attack and touching down and, you know, getting airborne again. Um, you know, and when I finally got to do it, you know, I just did what they told me to, you know, begin your turn at the beam of the boat. Um, you know, as we were going in, it was kind of interesting. I, I was uh, the wingman going in and the lead and the, the ceiling, I think, was low. It was like 700, 800 feet. And yeah. the lead went in. He broke, and he disappeared into the clouds. Like, well, okay. <laughs> okay, 1,001, 1,002, and then I, I broke left. And uh, well, fortunately, I broke out, and then I, I could, you know, see the Eisenhower. And I just did my procedures, you know, speed, gear down, flaps down, hook down, or hook up, because they wanted me to do two passes. Oh, touch and goes before you touch do. Touch and yeah. goes. Yeah. You know, you're, you're nervous. I can understand the student's position. You know, you turn your base leg. Okay, am I at this altitude, 450 feet? As I turn in, roll on the final. You know, I can see the ball. You know, you go through those procedures, um, flying the power down. Um, and then as soon as you, you know, you touch down and you hit metal, and, it, you know, if you, you feel it, and you're like, and you go to airborne, and you're like, I can do this. This is cool. Yeah. This is, this is, a, this is what a feeling. And there's just, no Disneyland ride, Disney World ride that could no, not even close, right? Yeah. And I came around again, did the same thing, and then they said put the hook down. Um, did the hook, you know, had the hook down, but I was not, even though my, you know, I kept thinking hook down, lock my harness, hook down, lock my harness. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, when you that D cell is like hitting a brick wall. It's not like what you see in the movies or anything or of, of any it you hit a brick wall. So, yeah, so the first first time I did, I went out into T two, got got uh, two touch and goes on the boat. I'm like, okay, this this I got this wired. This is cool, not a problem. Come around, okay, drop your hook, come around, meatball lineup, angle of attack. Here I come, everything's looking good. Touch down, 
And I remember looking over to the right, like, okay, what am I going to slow down here? And I'm watching uh, what we lovingly referred to uh, all the deck apes, <laughs> looking at them all standing there. They're all looking at me and I'm all looking at them. And then comes the bow or the, uh, the angle deck goes by me and the airplane settles a little bit and I climb back out and I go, what the hell happened? You know, finally come back around and, and tried again and, and got aboard. I actually got an okay pass, which is the, the, not okay underlined, but a, a very good grade for that landing. And they said, you got a hook skip bolter. It just, it, the hook didn't have enough down pressure. It skipped over the wire and, and you would have had a three wire and you were good to go. You boltered. I had enough gas for one more pass, and then I was going to have to bingo, uh, min gas back to land. And the, so the second time it, it caught, and that's when they took me over to the uh, to the island, chained me down, started fueling me. I'm sitting there. It's the only time you can relax, right? Even a little bit on the carrier. Yeah, I remember that. When you're chained down and they're fueling you, don't do that. Don't relax because uh, bad things are going to happen. So I'm I'm semi relaxed, and the next thing I know, I feel boom, and the whole airplane rocks, and I go, ah, look over. They taxied another airplane right into my wingtip. Oh, <laughs> like, oh man! All I've got, I, I don't even have happened. a toothbrush out here. I got my bag on, and that's it. My flight suit, nothing else. And uh, so, about three or four minutes later, out comes a roll of speed tape. They've got aluminum tape. They tape up my wingtip. They shoot me off the front. I get four more traps. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, that's awesome. <laughs> and then, and then I get called and back to land. So I'm like, so I did my uh, car- first carrier qualification with a taped up wingtip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah high, so, speed, uh, high speed duct tape. Exactly. 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 Like aluminum uh, coated duct tape. Yeah. Um, so my experience at the boat was the scariest one that I had was landing at night to, to a 210 foot Coast Guard cutter. Um, which has a helo deck that's maybe about 30 feet by 30 feet and about 15 feet of diff, maybe 10 to 15 feet of difference between yeah. the front end of the rotor arc and the superstructure. Um, and, you know, that was just terrifying. Um, mm. You know, it's, it, you, when you, we, you literally hear about yeah, landing on an aircraft carrier is like landing on a postage stamp, oh, yeah, landing on a Coast Guard cutter. Yeah, a, you had a lot a less tolerance than we did on our. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. you know you get over your spot and you kind of just you dropping you're not slamming your collective down but you're not dawdling you know you get over your spot and there's like about a three foot diameter circle with a grid that's built into it like a steel structure and underneath the helicopter we have this thing called a talon and uh when that came down the wheels would touch down you collapse the weight on wheel switch and then the talon would reach down and grab the helicopter or keep the helicopter on the deck and keep you from rolling off but still it's it's just scary so terrifying Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> whoever, I, well, whoever came up with the idea of landing airplanes and helicopters on boats, what are they thinking? That, that's it's dangerous, especially at night. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> oh man, that stuff's terrifying. All right, hey, um, we're getting near time to uh, to land the airplane, but uh, y- y- we were chatting beforehand and you told me about a story when you were over in uh, Europe and you doing some track doing some running and you got to film a commercial yeah that was Uh, kind of yeah so they on the uh, um, NES Roto radio station or something they'd advertise like hey if you're a runner show up tomorrow morning at seven o'clock or something I had no idea what, what it was about so usually in the mornings I'd go in into the gym and work out 
and uh, I saw him out there with cameras and stuff. And I showed up and they said, OK, run from here to that point over there. And I did. And I gave him my name. And about two weeks later, I get a call and said, hey, we're filming a commercial for a drink called Lucasade. It's a drink that they serve in Great Britain. And we need you on these dates. Will you be there? And I said, OK, let me call you back. I'll get permission from the squadron. I mean, how many days do you need me? And they said three days. So so I showed up and it turns out that I'm with um, these British Olympic sprinters. Uh, one's named Derek Redmond and the other one's Daley Thompson. And to be honest, I can't remember the third one. And I apologize right. for that. But these but these guys are no slouches. They're Olympic sprinters. Daley Thompson won the decathlon, I think, at the L.A. Olympics in 84. Okay. Oh, this is, God. I think, 89 or something. And uh, so they have us uh, set up and long, long days of waiting, but they'd have us set up at night that we're hurry going up and to wait. Be, Yeah, hurry <laughs> up and wait. That we're going to be uh, running with Derek Redmond. Now, Derek, just to flash forward, Derek Redman is the one in the 92 Barcelona Olympics in the 400 meters. He's the one who pulled a muscle and his father came down from the stands right. Uh, right. To, to help to assist him around the track. And that's the same oh, Derek Redman. Yeah. So, you know, Derek ended up going to the you know the Olympics to rep- represent uh, uh, Great Britain. So as uh, anyway, as we're filming this, um, the director tells us what you're doing. Okay, everybody start at this point. They had Derek in lane four. I was in lane three and in the inside, and there were some other runners that had shown up. I think a couple um, from Spain had been there too, and they were also sprinters. We come down the straightaway, and I'm right there with Derek. <laughs> and I, I hadn't sprinted in two years, but I'm, you know, <laughs> back to my ego and competitiveness. I mean, I can't let Derek beat me. I just, I just can't do it. So as we're getting close to the finish line, I just lurch forward and I cross the tape first. And I'm like, ah, in my brain, I'm like, ha ha, I'd be an Olympic runner. And the director comes out and goes, please don't do that. We want, <laughs> we, we need Derek to win because the point of the commercial is Derek, Derek wins. He's got to go do another race. He can't finish. You know, he doesn't have the energy. Daly Thompson will walk up, give him a Lucasade. He drinks it and goes back and finishes the race. Well, that's the race he's supposed to win after drinking the, the Lucasade. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So as we come down the straightaway again, I'm right with him. I'm right with him. And then in the end, I, I just slowly back off and uh, we cross the line. Derek was a great guy, great character, you know, love being around. I'm just a really joyful guy. And he turns to me, he goes, mate, stop pushing me so hard. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's what I do. You know, right. did, I, I think four or five takes, but it was, um, Back then, European television was a different format. I did not have a European TV, but uh, I got to uh, – uh, I'd walk in the squadron and somebody would walk up and go, I, I saw you on TV last night. You were sprinting down. Was that you? Was that you? And I said, yes. But, you know, I've looked on YouTube. I, I can't find that commercial anywhere. Oh, no kidding. All yeah. Right. There's no, a lot of – one of our listeners can find it and send it to us. And- yeah, if somebody finds it, I'd, I'd love to see it. But I would be in the inside. Uh, I think I had a blue uh, – uh, tank top on uniform top, but it was, it was really great to, to, to experience that while I was overseas. Yeah. And again, it was just kind of like a little carry on a little track uh, legacy uh, of that, of my competitiveness and stuff. Hey, Briggs, but, uh, do us a favor and uh, don't, don't, don't beat the Olympic runner, please. No. <laughs> the Olympic runner has to win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I, I need to know how, 
how slow do you think everybody else was at AOCS? How slow? But yeah, we're like when you were running, you know, were you like going, oh my God, these guys. Well, we didn't really do the sprints. We did rifle runs and we had to stay as a group. Okay. Um, But I do remember we had to go from one building to another, carrying our sea bags in our front, Mm -hmm. everything we had. And they, they would make us run around the block, run around the block, run around the block. And I got behind somebody that's really slow. And finally he fell. And I think with my, and they wouldn't let me pass him. And <laughs> when he fell. I think I actually used the sea bag as a cushion to drop on his body, roll around, get back on my feet and then just keep going as we uh, went into battalion two on that end. So Wow. But wow. there wasn't, you know, everything was grouped done because you're done as a class. So yeah. there yeah. really wasn't anything where I could just stand out and start sprinting. We, we had the mile and a half run. Um, that was pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was always in okay shape, but I was amazed at the fact, you know, my, I think my best time in three miles was uh, a little under 20 minutes, 19 and a half. 1940, yeah, something like that, you know, yeah. not, not bad. And to get a 300 on the PFT in the Marine Corps, you had to be able to do, uh, an 18 minute three mile run and we had guys crossing at 1445 you know 1415 you're just going oh man that is just <laughs> well i was a sprinter i kind of died yeah. out after the first mile but uh, it was still fun i enjoyed yeah, but it. still uh, yeah it, to, to to watch the speed of these guys that would yeah they would do it um, and i just well, remember my drill instructor staff sergeant carney just you better catch him, Briggs, you know, type thing. You know, you just always hear their voice and everything you did. You know, even today, sometimes you work out, you can still hear your drill instructor's voice. You know, oh, yeah, no, you, totally. You know, I, I remember. So at the academy, I went to Kings Point. And, uh, you know, like, so my plebe year, I remember, man, I just felt like we were running like nonstop. And, you know, it was running as fast as I could. And then I get to my senior year. And I'm actually helping to run the plebe class, and I'm looking at the my plebe class, and I'm going, "My God, these guys are slow!" <laughs> and I'm like, I'm "Like you guys just pick it up." Yeah, but, uh, yeah, you know that the thing about AOCS um, and uh, is the drill instructor's voice is it just never leaves you. It just no, right. anytime going into Akrotiri with our thing, it, it was just that that perseverance that would just keep you going. And keep you going. Yeah, like, you're, not, you're not allowed don't to quit. quit. You can quit anytime you want, but you're not allowed to, really. Yeah, we're not, you know, right. But you're at the point, you're not quitting because we trained you. You're going to complete the mission. Right. You know, you know what? We talked about briefly, you were talking about your, uh, you know, you talked to your parents. And I, I remember the same feeling. I never wanted to quit anything more in my life, but I was so pissed off. I wasn't going to give them the satisfaction of doing it. And uh, I think you said, you know, you talked to your parents all the time. It's like, hey, I did. And, you know, they were very encouraging. Day. They said, you know, there's nothing for you to come home to. Just just stick it out for another day. And as we had a saying, um, at AOCS, days go like weeks and weeks went like days. You stuck it out. And next thing you know, it was the weekend. And now you could have a little bit of time to catch up, get polished, get ready for a room locker inspection type thing and get ready for the next week. And, you know, right. long days, but therefore, next yeah. thing you know, it's another weekend. So. But it, yeah. interestingly, you said it, it and it served you well during your emergency that you knew you had to persevere. There, there was no quit. There's no giving up. Yeah. So you know what prepped me for the academy? It was uh there was a book that I'd read, uh Sense of Honor by James Webb, um, which yeah. really sort of put me in that mental place that I needed to be. And uh you know, the thing is is I never visualized myself quitting. 
you know, I just didn't, I mean, it would pop into your head, but I just, I shut it out. And, uh, I think that's about the only way you get through something like that. Yeah. I, you know, you're right. I, you know, there are times like, I don't think I can do it with a swim. Maybe I should just quit now, but you know, you'd think about quitting, you'd want to quit, but you wouldn't quit. Yeah. So you just persevere and, and you have to throw my ass out. <laughs> yeah. And, and we knew once, once you said DOR, you're done. There, there, you, there was no ever going back to AOCS. I think one person tried and it took him three years to get back in. Yeah. That, that's how serious they were about it. Disappeared from the face of the planet for all intents and purposes. And, and exactly. then the same thing happened, you know, when you're in the plane, you know, and you have an emergency like that, you know, you're visualizing, okay, I'm not going to visualize us, you know, failing at getting the plane back down. We're going to get the plane back down one way or another. And that's, that's where I think this all comes together. And it was a great team effort between Bob and Mike and Petty Officer Grzbowski and myself. We just had to work together as a team. We did work together as a team to get that airplane safely on the ground. Boy, that's a recurring theme throughout all of our shows. So, Briggs, thank you. Thank you for your service. You're welcome, guys. Thanks for inviting me. Glad you came on. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. Love to have you back. Thanks. Tell some more stories. Think of some bullet points. Write them down. Get them to us. And uh Come back and have some more fun and some more hijinks. Yeah. Thank you for your service. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks to you guys. And, you guys and, the and the sacrifices made by your family as well. Yeah, yeah thanks. So. Indeed. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Glad to have you. And thanks to my special co-host, Sticks. Thanks for coming on with us today, Sticks. Much yeah, no problem. Repeat. Sitting in for Fig, who's sunning himself over on the sunny shores of Italy. So. And so there I was, bikini. Yeah, absolutely. Oof. Well, folks, you stuck with us through another hilarious and nail-biting So There I Was episode. First and foremost, we salute all the brave men and women who have served and are now serving. And a massive shout-out to the family members of all of our veterans. We know they couldn't do it without their sacrifices and support. On a lighter note, let's give thanks to the tech maestro, Dave Hamilton. He's the reason you're hearing us without too many Foxtrot uniforms. For more of Dave, check out his other shows. Mac Geek Gab for tech enthusiasts, The Gig Gab for musicians, and for the entrepreneurs among you, there's The Business Brain Podcast. Speaking of pros, the advertising you hear is managed by the talent team at Backbeat Media. Online at backbeatmedia.com. And no, they didn't pay us to say that. <laughs> Ever find yourself baffled by some of the terms we throw around? Well, if they fly over your head faster than a fighter jet, well, we've got you covered. Dive into our glossary at so there I was us slash glossary. If you can't find the term or just want to chat, shoot us an email, whether it's fig, sticks, or me, repeat, at so there I was us. We're always up for a good chat or a laugh. All right. So for all of those listeners wanting to show off their love for the show, don't miss out on our merch. We've got everything from T-shirts, hats, mugs, bikinis, which Fig happens to be wearing right now while he's on vacay. And you heard that one right. So go on over to our merch store at So There I Was slash merch. And a massive thank you to our Patreon pilots for keeping our show soaring. If our antics tickle your fancy and you feel like supporting us for roughly a buck and a quarter a show, head over to so there I was us slash Patreon. Your contributions help keep us in the air. 
Short on cash, that's totally cool. You can still spread the love by visiting our advertisers, engaging with our Facebook group, retweeting our updates, and by hitting us up with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Not four, not three, but five. Share the show. What Stick said, share the show. Have you done it yet? Stop right now. Go out, tell a friend or two, and share the show. Hey, kudos also to our other behind-the-scenes champs. A big thanks to Chase Cole for keeping our Facebook page in check. And to you, Sticks, for your undeniable charm and your production skills, of course. Let's also not forget Brad Silcott over at BDSAviationPhotography.com for the stunning visuals on our site. And finally, props to Dos Gringos and their foot-tapping tunes. They're the ones that make the Air Force shine. Find their music on Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, and more. So, as we close the hangar door on today's episode, in the words that echo at hangars and runways, stay safe and check sixth. Well, there I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the shit I was wearing. On that day Now an F-16 is cramped enough But it's even worse With all that stuff Supposed to save your life But we knew there was no way Cause when you're going down the North Atlantic Man, it's over Whoa, what do you say, Sticks? It's over <laughs> Yeah, it is See ya You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.